0: Give you just a few moments to find that passage. It's it turned to Amos as often as we do some of the other books, and sometimes it takes a while to locate that portion of Scripture. Nine chapters long and very wonderful book, and we're going to get into it in a portion of our understanding of Amos tonight, but there's some things in here that is so appropriate for us to consider. Amos 1 1. The words of Amos one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the tops of Carmel wither. let Stop right there, and we're going to consider some things before we get into the rest of the passage. Amos was a herdsman from Tekoa. Tekoa was about twelve miles south of Jerusalem, and he was not a professional preacher. He was a farmer. He was a herdsman, but he heard God speak. And this reference in verse two: "The Lord roars from Zion." He's saying it's the Lord that's speaking from Jerusalem that I have that's given me this message. He was a common farmer, but he had heard from God. But without hesitation, he responded to what God was asking him to do, and he began to deliver the message of God. Now, he did not deliver the message at Jerusalem. He delivered the message 22 miles north up in Bethel, which was sort of a secondary capital, a secondary place to worship the Lord. We're going to talk about that a little later. But that's where he delivered this message. He is the first of the writing prophets, and being a farmer, his writing style is intriguing. His use of illustrations and parables leaves, well, it leaves me amazed anyway, anyway how somebody with probably such a limited education could come up with the various writing styles of uh, his master of the language, his use of technique and writing, it's, uh, it just borders on, on amazing. He is a master of the purest and the most classical Hebrew, and one writer says of Amos, While rhetorical and oratorical, he blends in the epigrammatical and the metaphorical, and his imagination glows with oriental homeliness and eloquence of heaven-born conviction." I'm glad this author said that, because I don't talk that way. But Amos is a beautiful writer. I mean, you can't imagine a farmer on the hillside writing the way this guy writes, which shows and gives evidence of the of the message that he's giving is God. And then there's boldness. I mean, here's a farmer, and generally, oh well, I grew up in a farming community, and you don't usually consider farmers as the kind of people that like to get up front and talk, or to take a real bold position in public. They're just generally not that kind of people. But this guy's boldness repris- re- re- comes close to Isaiah and Elijah. Just bold in their approach to no matter who wants to listen to the message. Or you can bear him a New Testament to John the Baptist. He's that kind of a prophet. In eight, he said God took possession of him and seized him. And then his response was immediate. It was almost like the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach this gospel, that was Amos' response. Amos had heard from the Lord, and his attitude was, woe, in me, woe is me if I do not deliver this message that God has given me for you. The condition of Israel and Judah at the time, they both had enjoyed success, periods of expansion, military successes, and the military success, successes had led them to economic prosperity. So it was a time of plenty. A time of fatness. A time where they, had, they were living in comfort. That was the condition of the day. The kingdom, of course, was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem, The capital of Israel was Samaria. The kings at the time were Uzziah and Jeroboam. Uzziah in the southern, Jeroboam in the northern. The standard of living was at an all-time high. The food, the drink, the luxurious style of living. It said that the furniture was expensive and elaborate. We read on further in Amos, and it talks about people having a summer home and a winter home. talks about the ivory inlaid furniture. It was just a time of uh, plenty. But the disturbing thing, as we read through the book of Amos, it wasn't a time of plenty for everybody. The rich were exploiting the poor. And that's part of why Amos has a message from the Lord. Because in the midst of all this plenty was corruption. We read a little later on that there was the worship of the golden calf, still associated with the worship of the Lord, but it was the golden calf they were worshiping. There was gross immorality accompanied by the pagan worship that had been accepted. And so the moral fiber of Israel, the backbone of Israel, was broken. That's why God had a message through the prophet Amos was living outdoors unencumbered by these plush surroundings that were being found in the city. It's also believed that the caravan trails that led up through Judah up into Israel passed by, and probably he was in a conversation with those in those caravans and well aware of the situation, what was going on in the land. And he saw at once the shallowness of this present prosperity and the injustice of all those in authority, and the spiritual outrage that God would have against some of the conditions in the land. The date of the book dates back to about 765 B.C., according to that earthquake that they mentioned there in verse 1. But let's see how this book unfolds. Verse 3. Verses 3 through the end of chapter 1. There's a certain cadence. There's a certain meter. There's, some call it a formula. And if you look at it, you see that about every third verse begins the same way. So we'll look at verse three and it reads this way. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn my, not turn back my wrath. So we have this little formula. For three sins of Damascus, even for, I will not turn back my wrath, and then the punishment. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, For three sins of Gaza, even for, I will not turn my, turn back my wrath, I will send fire. I will destroy their king. Verse 9, For three sins of Tyre, even for, I will not turn back my wrath, I will send fire. Verse 11, for three sins of Edom, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. I will send fire and in the judgment. Verse 13. For three sins of Ammon, even four, I will not turn back. So you get the picture. The reason why this is repeated is for emphasis. It's part of a Hebrew style of writing. And he didn't change his mind. He didn't say, well, there's three sins. No, no, wait a minute. There's four sins. He says that for emphasis. And God was not confused. He didn't lose count in how many sins he was coming in judgment against. The style is there to emphasize the fact that judgment is coming. And here's the interesting thing. You've probably already noticed those names in your mind. You've got the map of the Middle East, and you've located Damascus and Gaza and Tyre, and you've located all these cities in your mind, but it helps me to recount that to you so that you know as your pastor I know where these cities are. But what he's doing is very interesting. He starts up here in Damascus, and he says, For three sins of Damascus, yea, even four, judgment is coming. Then he moves down here to Gaza, and he says, And for three sins of Gaza, judgment is coming. Then he moves up to Edom, and over back over to Ammon, and then to Moab. And and what he's doing, he's encircling Israel and Judah. And he does that about twice with these cities. It's like he makes a spiral around this area twice. You can almost hear the people as he goes up, this farmer's coming up and saying, I've got a message of the Lord. And he goes to Bethel, the place of worship, and he gathers a crowd. And he says, For judgment is coming. For three sins of Damascus. And he begins to name. And for three sins of Gaza. And he begins to name. And you can almost hear the people say, Yeah. Three sins of Damascus. Yeah, Gaza. They need to be punished. And then tire. yes, they're on the seashore. They, they need to be punished. And unsuspecting, he just keeps getting closer and closer and closer to where they are and to where the problem is. If we were to put it in today's phraseology, and a prophet were to stand before us today, we would put it somewhat like this. For three sins of the Methodists, yea, even four, judgment is coming. And some people would say, yeah, they need a little judgment. And for three sins of the Presbyterians, Judgment is coming, and some people would say, yeah, they're a little lost things. And then, for three sins of the disciples of Christ, judgment is coming, yea, even four. And for three sins of the Pentecostals, and the Charismatics, pretty soon we, we hear, and three sins of the Wesleyans, say it's getting a little close to home. And you know who's next? The Missouri district. And that was his approach. It's almost like he would say Bartlesville and Tahlequah and Muscovy and Sand Springs and Owasso and Tulsa. And you know he's next. And that was his approach. It took him a whole chapter to get there. But what he was saying is I think what God was saying is I know what's going on all over. And I'm not just the God of the Israelites. I am the God of the world. And I see what's happening in every situation. And judgment is coming because of what I see. Finally got to Judah. And for three sins of Judah, yea, even four. And those three sins were spelled out. Not just one sin now, but the closer he gets to Israel, the closer comes the... And finally the bomb is dropped. Look at uh, verse 6, chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even four. I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteousness for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken and fled. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fine. The sins are spelled out, seven of them. They're listed there. We've just read them. Israel had become involved in temple prostitution carried on by the heathen in honor of their false gods. But they carried on this practice in Jehovah's name. The immoral worship provided male and female prostitutes in every precinct of the temple at Bethel and in the name of religion. Even the wine they drank was taken unjustly from the poor through judicial fines. Look at verse 9. After he spells out the sins of Israel, look at what he says in verse 9. I destroyed the Amorite before them. So he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oak, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. Then he says this to Israel, I brought you out of Egypt, and I led you forty years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. And I also raised up prophets from among sons, and Nazarites from among young men. Is this not true, people of Israel? but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not prophesy. You know what he's saying there? I punished the Amorites for the same thing that you're doing now. And sin is sin no matter who commits it. We begin to see what was happening in the children, with the children of Israel at that particular time. Because now it's Israel. In fact, Israel, the Lord says through these verses, is even more subject to the judgment of God because of the blessing of God that they had received. He said, didn't I bring you out of Egypt, out of slavery? And now look at what they're doing. Israel had turned to darkness in profaning the very name and the very character of God by its immorality. So judgment is announced. And how they're going to be judged, look at the severity in verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. What imagery. That sounds like a farmer, doesn't it? As this cart loaded with grain just crushes everything in its path, God said it's going to be. That's the way judgment is coming. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. The horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee on that day. At this point, I stopped and I asked myself a question. Can I hear... The heart of God coming through such pronouncement. Do we envision God as waiting for this moment so that he can now crush these people beneath this cart? No. These were God's children. These were his people. Well, why was all of this severe judgment coming? Remember he said, Whatever you're relying on is not going to save you. If you're swift of feet and say, oh, "I can outrun any judgment coming," forget it. If you're a strong warrior and a soldier and you're saying, "Well, you know, by my strength, I can I can take on any army that's coming," so forget it. He lists seven things there. He says, "Whatever you're trusting in will not be adequate to deliver you." The judgment that I'm sending will be complete. Now, if God loves us so much. Why would he treat his people this way? He was saying there is no escape. Is it possible for us to see the holiness of God come through this passage? If we do not see the holiness of God, we'll never understand judgment like this. And we'll never understand the severity of sin. Here's God's people that he had brought them. He just said, I, I brought you out of Egypt and I have delivered you and I've given you this land and now look what you're doing with me. You're taking the very gift that I've given you and now you're profaning my name. And because I have called you to be my people, others are looking to you and now look what you're doing by your example. And because of what you're doing and for your own good, can we understand that? And for your own good, punishment must come. There's another message in here to parents about children. It's all right to have punishment for children. We're not talking about physical abuse. But God loves Israel as much as He loves you and I. And He says to them when they're way off base in their worship and they're and when they're coming over here and profaning his name, he said, I must bring judgment, because I cannot allow, for Israel's sake, this to continue. Aren't there times with your children where there's where there's certain things that are happening in your lives and you say, I cannot allow this to continue. And you don't turn your back on it, you don't turn your head, you face it severely, and you begin to you begin to take on that kind of, of punishment that's necessary. It was as if Amos was saying to them, there will be no escape. And do you see what they had done? They had taken the things of God and they had modified them. They had not done away with the things of God. They would just simply changed them a little bit. They were still going through all the motions. They looked godly. They looked like they still were serving the Lord. Turn to chapter 4, if you're not there already, and look at verse 4. This is said with great sarcasm. Another technique in the writing of Amos. Listen to it. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Those were two places where they erected their own temples for their own reasons. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithe every, every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering, and brag about your free will offerings, boast about them, you Israelites. For this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. You see, they were going through all the motions. It looked like they were really worshiping the Lord. You see, they were bringing their sacrifices every morning. That wasn't what God said to do. God said, "You bring your sacrifices." For two reasons. For a thank offering or in repentance. Well, they, thought, they said, we're going to bring ours every morning. It's going to be our way of doing it. And where were they doing it? God never gave them permission to be at Bethel. That was their idea. God never said, brand in paganism in your form of worship. That was their idea. But they said, no, we've not put away God. We've just modified it a little bit. We're contemporary in our approach to things. We're keeping up, out. And the tithe, they brought in their tithe every three days. But the law said to bring it in once a year, and on the special tithe was once every three years. The Thanksgiving sacrifice was another thing that they had modified. You see, they included the leaven cakes. But the Mosaic law had plainly forbidden the burning of the leaven in any sacrifice. And they'd modified the free will offering, and you can see the things in there that they'd taken the form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. Sometimes we get so busy in the mechanics that we forget about the devotion of the heart. You know, First Corinthians, it reminds us all of our doing apart from a heart full of love is what. Sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. Israel had fallen into her own trap. Days of prosperity. Things are going well. Let's keep the motions. We'll just modify them a little bit. And we still admit that there's a God, but their heart is dry. There's nothing wrong with going through the motions. I love to sing. I love to hear the choir sing. I love the praise that we have in church, the special songs, the piano, the organ, the teaching of the Sunday school classes, the ministries through the week. But unless the heart is right, it makes God sick. It did hear. Their heart is not right. And I believe in our world today, just like Amos was seeing it there, that judgment is coming. Israel was laid back in their approach to things. They were God's people, they had a great history, but now they were fat and happy. You can check the reference. I I'm glad it was Amos that said it. I could never bring myself to say this unless God told me to. Chapter 4, verse 1. Do you see what he calls the women there? Not very good. You women who oppress the poor. See what he calls them? In the first line there. Hear this word, you cows of bashing? <laughs> you know the cows of bashing were fat? know what he's really he saying? You old fat cows up there? And you can see why as you read the rest of the passage. They were sitting back partaking of their chocolates and their wine and sending their husbands out to get more money for the poor so they could have more chocolates and wine. <laughs> if they were around today, you know where they'd be? What program on television would they be on? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. What's God's attitude towards that? The. You're oppressing the poor. You're taking what I have given you and you're not using it properly. You're hoarding everything onto yourself. You've missed the purpose of my blessing. Israel had forgotten who she really was. She was called of God to speak for God, to be the people of God to the rest of the world. She was to create a hunger and thirst for all the other nations, to hunger and thirst after the Lord God Jehovah. Instead, she retained the title of being God's people and only going through the motions, empty motions, and sank to the level of those around her and serving God in her own way. And that was the affront to the character of God. She could not go on living this way for her own sake, and God brings harsh punishment. Why? so that Israel can be brought back to her own senses. That's why. Do you see the love of God coming through punishment? God says, I cannot allow you to continue to live this way. Punishment must come to bring you back so that you can see that it's not by your own strength. It's not by your own merit. It's not by your own ways that's made you prosper. It is by my hand. And if I have to stop what's happening and stop it in dramatic ways, he said war is coming, and you will be defeated. And if I have to show you that way, I'll show you that way because I love you. And because I cannot allow you to continue to go on this way. Do you see any parallels between the book of Amos and us? I think you do. We too are the people of God. We too have the call of God. We are to make the ways of God known to the rest of the world, our world. And if we're not careful, we can rest on the successes of the past, and we can rest back and become comfortable and fat, Until we're merely going through the motions of worship, and the choir sounds nice, and we come to a nice building, and the pastor gives a nice sermon, telling nice people how to be nicer. That's what Reuben Wells calls the bland leading. Leading the bland. Bob Worth could say that. He could say it a lot better than I could. That sounds like an Oklahoma. Phrase, doesn't it the bland leading leading the bland? And we smile at that phrase until we realize that it could be true. What's our world like? And what's our attitude about what's going on in our world? and the materialism and the humanism that's all around us, and people going to hell, and sometimes it's easy for us to rest back and just be comfortable. But God is still a holy God, calling us to be holy people, and to give the message of holiness to a world that's so lost, God told Israel through Amos, "Judgment is coming." Here's a farmer, and the difference of God speaking that's made in his life. He says in 3 eight, we'll get into that next week. The lion has roared. He said, "I heard God speak, and He showed me some perspective on what's going on in our country and our land, and we've got to do something about it. And unless we begin to change our ways, judgment is coming to us." You say, "Pastor, he isn't coming to this church?" No, my message tonight is: let's just stay on track so that God does not have to discipline. And let's have enough hunger in our heart where we say, Lord, what you did for Amos, would you begin to speak to me? I'd like to hear the lion roar (laughs) about where our country is and where my community is and where my church is and what's our role in all of this. That's where God has been stirring my mess lately. Bill gave me a book entitled A Flame for God. I've been reading it. Because I want that to happen in my life. I'm praying that God would give me the same kind of zeal that I see coming through a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Amos, With the same boldness and the same courage. And I'm praying the same thing for each of you. You say, well, we're not prophets. Oh, yes, we are. In Christ, we're all prophets. And to proclaim the message of holiness and to be his people in the midst of a lost and dying world is the need of the out. And I don't want us to become comfortable. (laughs) I don't want God to have to deal with us in disciplines and judgment, but in blessing his church because of our obedience to him. Do you have a burning heart for the Lord? As we get into the book of Amos even further, we're going to see some tremendous things that God unravels. Begin reading first. The next couple weeks in chapter 3. I think chapter 3 and chapter 7 are some of the finest chapters in that book. And yes, we have much to learn from reading the book of Amos. As we conclude our service tonight, I want to do it with a hymn. The hymn is not the important thing. Before we sing that hymn, I just want to talk to you for just about another minute. I really don't know how to say it, except to just say it this way. I'll make an attempt at it. Even from Sunday to Sunday, we can come to church and smile at one another in the foyer and in the hallway. Sometimes act like nothing's wrong when we're really hurting on the inside. And sometimes when we hear the problems and difficulties of other people, we really don't know what to do or how to respond. I know that. But I don't want us to ever become insensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit in reaching out effectively as a church to one another. And in our time of prayer tonight and closing this service, if you want to come and just pray for someone else, that's okay. You want to come and pray about your burden for the world. Or maybe you say, well, I I don't know that I am i have anyone in particular that I'm really burdened for in this church. See, that's part of the complacency. And maybe you just want to come and hold up someone that the Lord has already placed on your heart and pray for them tonight and say, Oh, Lord, you've spoken to me again. That this is what we're about. This is the living out of holiness. This is practicing the very word of God. No, God did not get delight in the punishment. He loved Israel and He still does. Just as He loves you and I. But He wants us to be obedient to Him and His voice and what He's saying to us. And if you don't come to pray for yourself tonight, consider coming to pray for someone else. If you knew half of what I knew as pastor about the needs represented in this church it'd nearly break your heart. But we're carrying one another in prayer. And I appreciate that. And God is going to lead us continually into victory because of our obedience and our commitment to him. As we stand and sing tonight I want you to turn to 246. The hymn is is thy heart right with God? Maybe as I preach tonight, someone had said, I, I can identify with just going through the motions. And the choir is nice, and the pastor gives nice sermons. But my life has really not been changed. And if you begin to feel that way, there's, there's a commitment that needs to be made in your heart and life. And the secret of it is what lies within. It's what happens within that makes the difference. And so as we sing this closing hymn, Is Thy Heart Right With God? If that hymn speaks to you, and if the Lord is talking to you, I invite you to come and kneel at this altar and to spend some moments in prayer. And let God meet you here at this place of prayer before you leave this service tonight.